So our panelists today, our first panelist is Kelly J. Baker. Uh, she's a religious studies PhD, writer, and the editor of Women in Higher Education. I just got a copy. And, um, and an impactful public scholar. She has uh, bylines in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Religion and Politics, Washington Post, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and Killing the Buddha. She is the author of the award-winning Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America. She's also the author of The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of the Zombie Apocalypse in American Culture, the author of the beautifully written book, um, not that they're not all beautiful, but this is particularly gorgeous. You know. Grace Period, A Memoir in Pieces, the award-winning Sexism Ed, Essays on Gender and Labor in Academia, and Final Girl, and other essays on grief, trauma, and mental illness, which will be published next year. We hope. Yes. Uh, Heidi Ippolito, is that per yep. Yep. Is a second year PhD student in the joint program, doc doctoral program at the University of Denver and the Illiff School of Theology. Her primary focus is the intersections between religion, television, film, media, fandom, and emergent forms of pop culture storytelling. Sarah Moxie, Moxie Gemba, did I? That was so good. That was so great. <laughs> uh, is the social media specialist for the George A. Smathers Libraries at the University of Florida. Moxie manages the main Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts for the libraries, a responsibility which includes content curation and promotional campaign development. She also created and maintains the social media guidelines for the libraries, offers trainings, and coordinates the social media working group to facilitate the exchange of ideas across libraries. Moxie is a doctoral candidate in religious studies at UF and also holds an MA in religious studies from UF and a BA in political science from Trinity University. Hussein Rashid <coughs> is a religious studies scholar who has a BA in Middle Eastern studies from Columbia University, a master's in theological studies focusing on Islam, and an MA and PhD in Near Eastern languages and cultures focusing on South and Central Asia from Harvard University. He works with a variety of NGOs, foundations, nonprofits, and governmental agency for content expertise on religion broadly with a specialization in Islam. He is currently a contingent faculty member affiliated with the New School, and he is also a public scholar who has appeared on numerous channels and contributed to many print media publications. His current projects include an independent film on wrongful terrorism arrests, a documentary on Muslims in America, a children's television show, and a museum project on religion and jazz. He worked with the Children's Museum of Manhattan as a content expert on their exhibit, America de Zanzibar, Muslim Cultures Near and Far. He is also an executive producer on the award-winning animated short, The Secret History of Muslims in America. And finally, uh, Mary Beth Yount is, that, yeah. Yeah. is an associate professor of theological studies, president of the faculty senate, and director of the PhD in counselor education and supervision with spiritual and pastoral integration at Newman University. She's also the executive director of the Catholic Family Fund Club and owner of LLC Initiatives of, PA, of Pennsylvania awarded a papal honor by Pope Francis and named one of Philadelphia's most interesting people by NBC10. Her nonprofit work has been featured in hundreds of media outlets, both scholarly and popular, including Time Magazine. So I will, who wants to go first? 
Should we go in reverse alphabetical order? We can go so we can end with Kelly? Yes, that sounds that that that's that satisfies the monk in me. If anyone has ever watched Monk, you would yeah, know yes. that. So I'm going to hand this down to Mary Beth, and you can just press start and you can, you know. So it's so great that the organization of this comes with a timer that we pass along. <laughs> <laughs> so I am the, you know, token full-time faculty member on this panel. I'm not sure it's the best for me to go first, but I'm happy to do so. What I really want to share with you is kind of the conflicted feelings that come with the privilege of being a full-time faculty member and the questions that come along with it and the ethical dilemmas that come along with it. It is certainly a position of privilege. It's a position that almost all of us, whether we necessarily wanted it when we went into grad school, thought we wanted it while we were in grad school because we were told by everybody that this is what you should want. Uh, a lot of you in the audience probably are still hoping that that might be what you'll end up doing. So I want to kind of start by acknowledging, you know, the privilege that is, at least in our culture right now, and in our field right now, and at AAR right now, a very privileged position. <clears throat> we all know, and that's one reason why we're here, that academia has structures that do not foster equality that do not bolster those of us who are in some of those structures. So I want to start by saying the structural problems in academia result in victimization in a lot of different ways. We saw some, we, we see continual struggles against this. We saw some of that with the QR code, code discussions. We saw people saying, is AAR a safe space for me? We saw other people saying, you know, the field of academic theology has never been a sp safe space for me. Mm -hmm. so, so we know there's all these kinds of tensions within the field and within the structures. And those who are victimized by oppressive structures are often told, this is your fault. You know, you chose to go into this field. You chose to take out $100,000 in loans. Clearly, you're not good enough. You didn't get that job that everybody was trying to get. So this is, you know, it's what happens. Sorry you didn't win the tournament. And that's kind of a message that goes out to all of us at different points. And you hear it in grad school a little bit if there's some transparency around the fact that there's no, no jobs while you're in grad school. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Um, so one thing I want to say, and part of that is because of what I'm going to tell you next, one thing I want to say is those who are victimized by structures are victims. And it's not their fault. Is, is it my fault? That's the next part of what I want to say. Right, because how complicit am I in academic structures that result in victimization? Right, I, I'm not contingent faculty. I have a permanent position. In fact, I direct a PhD program. 
Now, granted, the PhD program is clinical counseling, and most of them are clinical counselors and planning on being clinical counselors. But still, you know, I think being in this kind of a position, you know, it's, it's an ethical space where you have to say, am I advocating for those who are victimized by academic stru structures which are corrupt and capitalistic? And what am I doing to help right some of the wrongs that happen in this space? Am I fighting against the culture of silence that surrounds the fact that there really aren't a lot of faculty jobs? Am I helping make sure that those who are in graduate programs not only are aware of that fact, but are also receiving the kind of training that they would need to be able to pursue other careers beyond academia, bringing in speakers for workshops and those kinds of things. I mean, ultimately, academia is changing and all academics are disposable in a way that they might not have been in the past. That includes me, right? But also, there are academics and those who aspire to be academics who have been disposable almost from the beginning. So I want to say it's not your fault. I want to say pretty much everybody participating in academic structures is complicit in this in some way. But I also want to say there are things that those of us who are in the field can do and should be doing to try and right some of the structural wrongs, just like right some of the structural wrongs that exist in our larger America as we advocate for those who are marginalized and those kinds of things. So there's one more thing that I think about when I think about higher ed, generally speaking, and that is and I mentioned all academics are disposable in a way that they might not have been in the past. Also, academia has shrunk and gotten smaller, not just those in the privileged positions, but also there's a lack of being able to expand and reach beyond this narrow idea of academia. And so, personally speaking, I have questions too about academia is academia. Well, so one of the authors in the book that we're discussing said it really well, said academia might be too small to contain you. Mm -hmm. And when I read that I was like, wait a second. <coughs> That's why I do all these like 20 million other things and run these nonprofits and you know, was director of content programming for the Pope's visit. Like there's just, there's only so much you can do in that little off, in my little office right, of reading and writing, and that's why I like go to way too many conferences a year, because I need to be in that dialogue and feel like I have stretched beyond my little tiny space that is part of what I'm doing in academia. So I just think there's so many questions about academia, and I also think those who are in those privileged positions, you get it, you're told by everybody it's so rare, you're so lucky to have it, you, you finally get it. And for a lot of people, it kind of becomes golden handcuffs, and they just stay within that, and it's not fulfilling for them. But what else are they going to do? And they've been told by all these messages, like, you're the tournament winner, so you should be happy.
Okay. Oh, we are doing reverse alphabetical. That's Can right. I ask it all that? Because otherwise, I will fidget with it. That's my. Okay. I don't. I will play with two phones all the time. No problem. Um, Shuna, I want to thank you first uh, for um, modeling the land acknowledgement uh, that you began with, and I'm sad I didn't think of it myself. I should have. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, I'm the token male on the panel, following Mary Beth's example. <laughs> Um, I suppose, Kelly, I should actually start by thanking you since you wrote the book we're talking about. I or edited, edited, it, edited it. Edited it. But, you know, it's your Twitter feed. Okay, so um, <laughs> if you haven't read the book, if you're here to find out if you should read the book, let me tell you right now, you should read the damn book. Um, it's not a damn book. Just read the book. Um, but it, a lot of what it gets into is the practical and emotional struggles that we go through in thinking about leaving academia. Um, and I want to be clear, it is an emotional struggle. So I have been contingent faculty, not always as an adjunct, for the last 12 years. Um, I thought I could make a living at it at some point intellectually. I knew very early on that I couldn't make a living at it. My heart didn't catch up until I was at a small liberal arts college where I was put in their core course. And I was told to teach 50 students. Don't give them papers because it takes too long to grade. Give them multiple choice exams. And if you can give them the, exams, uh, the questions ahead of time to help them study, that would be great. And I'm like, I'm not, you know, it's the industrialization of education, right? I'm, I'm basically treating them like farm animals. We're, we're putting them in little cages, we're collecting their money, their product, and then sending them out without a diploma instead of the slaughterhouse. But, you know, essentially it's the same thing. And I think that's something to build a little bit off Mary Beth's point is we have to understand what higher education has become. She alluded to the QR code issue. Um, if you don't know what it is, the AR wanted to put QR codes on our badges. They wanted to brand us so they knew what we were doing. And they wouldn't explain what they were doing or why they wanted it, except it was to prevent badge fraud as they sent us PDFs to print our own badges at home. Like, I'm sorry, I have unlimited printing. It's one of the nice perks I have. I will print out 100 and leave them in front of the front door. Like, why not? Uh, but the AR is not our friend. They are paid to be our friend, and they're doing a lousy job of it. Because remember, their dues is, our dues are to buy their friendship. So because this is recorded, I want to be abundantly clear. The AAR is not our friend. They are not here to serve us. They're here to collect our money. And so the easiest way to make sure that they do what we want is to not give them money. This is how labor works. We are in the management position. Um, so there's not a lot coming back to the book. Um, Academy is not our friend. That's the transition point. Um, there's not a lot I have to say directly about the book because I think it covers the issues about that emotional detachment really well and that emotional transformation we have to go through. I think it covers a lot of the practical things to consider as you make that transformation through the essays. Um, and there are a couple of essays that do talk about some of the practicalities like how to negotiate a contract. Um, what I want to do is talk a little bit about my story and what I've learned in my story. And I want to be abundantly clear, it is my story. So if it works for you, great. What you learn from it, great. If it doesn't, it doesn't. I'm not taking it personally. Um, so as I talk about this, I am still an adjunct. I'm, I'm currently at the new school. I do not put, if you're not paying me to be here, your name does not go on my badge. This is a billboard, right? So you don't get billboard space without money. That's the way this works. Um, and so I still do work in academia. I love teaching. And the transformation I went through is considering myself as an educator. So what are the spaces in which I can educate? And that includes higher education. I love it. I love the classroom experience. I'm not going to give it up. I've been here at AR. Uh, I've been on the Contemporary Islam Unit. Uh, thanks to Kelly, one of the, the founding members for academic labor. 
and Chrissy, where Chrissy's left, but also on Applied Religious Studies who's sponsoring this. Um, I work on books and articles and, and book chapters. You know, I'll have two books out next year, edited volumes next year, uh, and three in 2021 if all goes according to plan. Uh, and I'm a freelancer. You heard in my bio. I work with museums, foundations, government, movies, including uh, feature films, documentary films, indie films, short films, um, and television. Um, and that a lot of the decisions that I made and how I got there were based on my family situation. Um, and this is something I really have to emphasize. My wife has a really well-paying job that can support us for short periods of time when I'm in between gigs, and it covers our insurance costs, right? Like that enables a lot to talk about privilege. That enables a lot of what I choose to do. Um, and so in terms of some of the skills I would encourage you to think about, and I think this is applicable whether in academia or not, and some of you who were in my earlier, I'm looking at you specifically, right, but uh, some of you who were in my earlier session heard me say this, is learn how to read a contract. How many of you have published an article or a book? And how many of you have signed contracts for those things? And how many of you have looked at your copyright? Right, do you understand the difference between copyright assignment and copyright transfer? Because if you don't, you're signing away stuff, right? Who has the ability, what happens if the book goes digital if it's not digital and it's it included in your contract? Who has the rights to control that? That's looking at your contract. I would want an adjunct position that terminated my employment, had the end date of my employment on the last day of classes, which is fine. That's actually a pretty standard contract, except this school had the exam period begin after the last day of classes, right? And so I wrote to my chair. I said, my employment has ended before final exams begin. What shall we do? This is a union issue. Take it. This is a union school. Take it up with your union. Wrote to the union. Oh, this is not a problem. Don't you know how, how adjuncting works? I'm like, you know, I've been doing this for a while. My contract says you pay me. Payment stops on this date. There is no more work after this date. And I said, it's probably a violation of federal law because I'm no longer a school employee. It is a FERPA issue for me to have access to student records. And they're like, no. And so I was like, okay, I'm not delivering the exam. You figure it out. I'm done. <laughs> By the way, I stopped teaching there at that point, um, but that was done. Uh, but you know, this is an academic thing, and, but I learned this the hard way, not within academia, but outside academia where I was figuring out what are my deliverables, how are people paying me, when are they paying me? That was, that's all stuff you need to learn. How to manage a budget. If you're applying for a grant and it's a $10,000 grant, are you thinking about how much goes to university overhead, goes to your student employees, the costs related? You know, you think you're building that in, but there's always more. And so you get that $10,000 grant, but you're walking away with $3,000. Is it worth the effort you put in to get that $10,000 grant? Right? I mean, I'm sure it's a great CV line, but it's probably costing you more to do that labor than even if you got all $10,000. Um, and so thinking then as a freelancer, again, this is what I had to learn is how much do I need to charge for my time that I am covering my costs, my expenses, my insurance, my, if I had insurance, and I do build that cost in, even though I'm not paying for it directly, uh, my insurance, my, um, uh, my retirement, and how much free time does it give me to spend with my family? That flexible time has to be there. And the last thing is, I can talk about this during Q&A, is also about work-life balance. Like, how do you structure your life so you have work-life balance, which is something we need in academia as well, right? Just the last thing is I work, I'm a night owl. I will stay up from like, my kids will go to bed at eight and I will work from like 8.30 to one o'clock in the morning. That's the way I work and that's fine with me. But how do you find a job that works with you around that? So who's next on the list? Moxie. I love a timer, so I've got, okay. I can use my own. Um, 
And I'm going to apologize for the semi-prepared statement, but um, I have to say reading this book was really difficult, and I found myself only being able to approach it one or two chapters at a time um, hmm. because, as I'll discuss, all of this is a little fresh for me. Um, so people ask me what I do, and they're typically surprised um, to find out what I, that I'm a social media specialist because that in and of itself is a fairly new field. Um, and the path that led me here is not a traditional communications person. Um, but to me, doing communications for an academic library uh, utilizes the skills that humanities um, programs seem to impart on students from the undergraduate to the PhD level. Um, but perhaps unlike others on this panel, I have effectively left my doctoral program after achieving ABD status. Um, and many of us are familiar with the struggles of academia. Um, I just want to speak to the few interrelated instances that led to me starting to look for a path out in fall um, like 2016. First, a very prominent faculty member who is administering one of my comprehensive exams and serving on my committee was put on leave and then later allowed to resign um, while I was taking my exams in fall 2015, which was a really destabilizing thing to experience. Um, I was also struggling to find my place in my department giving, given my academic interests, which tend to be uh, very broad <laughs> and very pop culture oriented. Um, in fall 2016, I faced a major health issue, as well as unexpected questioning about my suitability for the program from a member of my committee. Um, and that was despite never having gotten less than an A minus in any class that I had with, taken with this individual, and I think it was like three or four at that point. Um, academic Twitter had served as a truly transformative space for me because it, more than anything else, made me very acutely aware of the dire realities of the academic job market. Um, spending time there made me see how others were frankly sharing their experiences about leaving the academy. Um, and despite hearing all these stories and really taking them, them to heart and holding space for them, um, I wanted to hang in my graduate program because to me the goal was always to teach. That was what I wanted to do. That's why I pursued this PhD. Um, but because of Twitter, I kind of decided to listen to the canaries in the coal mine and um, inspired by discussions on things like public scholarship, I chose to diversify my skill set while I was in my PhD program. Um, of course, that combined with the extremely low wages <laughs> that humanities grad students are um, provided. Like, don't go to a non-fully funded PhD program, but if fully funded isn't covering your bills, can we call it fully funded? Um, so I sought out a, a part-time job, basically. Um, and I was fortunate to find a position at the George A. Smathers Libraries at the University of Florida as the outreach and social media specialist for our state's um, National Digital Newspaper Program Award, which if you're not familiar with that, it's an open access project to digitize historical newspapers and make them available for free to the public. And that's a partnership between the NEH and the Library of Congress. So it's a great primary source place if you're looking for stuff for students. Um, despite having a master's and being well into my do doctoral program, I'm embarrassed to admit I really didn't know what academic libraries did when I started working there. I knew about books and study spaces and archives. Um, but I didn't know that libraries work on grant-funded projects. I didn't know that they provide access to lots of otherwise unaffordable cutting-edge technology. And they're also on the forefront of discussions about information literacy and pedagogy. 
And I was extremely fortunate to become friends with several of my coworkers who were willing to teach me more about libraries and library culture, and it started to seem like a place I could land. Um, my health issue led me to do a lot of soul searching and become open to the possibility for looking for a position outside of my program and potentially leaving it. Um, around that same time, my partner finished his degree and was looking in his industry, so we really wanted to stay in um, the small college town where we lived, so that always presents an extra barrier to um, looking for employment. Um, and I was really fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. I'm not entirely sure what I did is completely uh, replicable, or I didn't say that right. You, I don't know if anyone's gonna be able to do exactly what I did, but I was open to the possibility for looking for jobs, and I wouldn't have noticed the job I currently have if I weren't open to that opportunity. Um, when my committee asked me when I was going to finish my dissertation, I actually told them I, that I had accepted my job that week, and I would probably never be finishing. Um, that was a really liberating moment. Um, so I do have some concrete suggestions for anyone who is preparing themselves for the reality of perhaps not getting an academic job. I think the biggest thing you can do is assess your skills, your projects, and your experiences, and not just pay attention to what you like doing, but also what you're good at doing, because sometimes those don't exactly overlap. <laughs> um, I like writing short, digestible pieces with quick turnaround times. I also really like learning a decent amount about a topic, but I don't want to learn a dissertation. <laughs> There's a really big difference between like teaching a class and even writing a paper and then a dissertation's amount of knowledge. And that just doesn't interest me. And I also don't like working alone for long periods of time. I really thrive by that kind of collaborative space like academic Twitter provides, but also working with having coworkers. I also redefine success. For me, that was largely related to lifestyle and not just the job itself. I wanted a 40 hour a week-ish schedule and health insurance. I also wanted enough income to be able to pay down debt and save for predictable expenses like car repairs. I'm not looking for a vacation in the Bahamas necessarily. Um, I was also unwilling to uproot my entire life in my 30s to move halfway across the country. And I'm sorry, these to me are reasonable things to want. Um, finally, you have to realize that you're not a PhD coming to save the day in any field. If you're gonna switch to a different career trajectory, you have to fundamentally realize that whatever field you want to enter has existed without your particular expertise and will continue to do so even without you. <laughs> Although I'm sure all of you have a lot to add to everything. Um, if you're specifically interested in a library career, you have to realize that that job market is as competitive as the academic job market, um, with many people say, facing the same issues, including underemployment, non-stable funding, and difficulty locating jobs in their geographic or subject area. And I have to conclude by saying that working in an academic library has been a very empowering experience because every day I get to use the skills that I acquired to connect students with resources, um, share what my library has done, and really just bolster the type of work being done by the university and our staff. And it allows me to do publicly facing work while also trying to internally shift our culture to one in which promotion is everyone's job. Um, and generally, I don't work on evenings and weekends. <laughs> and actually, we'll steal your timer. Oh, you will steal my timer? Yes, yeah, I'll totally be distracted fine. by my phone. Um, you just <laughs> press start. Perfect. Okay. So I'm Heidi Ippolito, and I am 
uh, just finished the first quarter of my second year of a PhD program at the University of Denver and ILIF School of Theology, which is an interdisciplinary program at both schools. And just to wind it all the way back for my undergrad, so you know, so I'm sort of the most forward-facing person here, sort of benefiting, even though I'm on this side of the table, which is really nice. <laughs> um, so I, I did my undergrad at USC in Los Angeles uh, at the film school there. So I would not have guessed that I would be sitting here <laughs> now, however <laughs> many years later. Um, but I, I did my undergrad in film studies, and I ended up doing a religious studies minor because they were just classes I couldn't stay away from. And I worked in the entertainment industry for several years and really enjoyed it, and then sometimes really didn't enjoy it, and found myself craving to go back to school, which again, not something I expected to do. They don't really groom you to uh, stay in grad school when you're in film school. <laughs> Just you know, tell you to get out there and make networking connections. So I ended up looking around for programs online and found I was, I knew that if I was going to go back to school, it needed to be something I really wanted to do. So I found this wonderful program at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland called Theology, Imagination, and the Arts. And I did my MLIT there. Strongly considered staying for a PhD, even though I didn't really know what that meant. And the MLIT is only one year, so I was there about two months, and everyone started asking, are you gonna apply for a PhD? I don't know, I barely understand what that is. So I sort of, with my last uh, gap between BA and MA, same sort of thing. I've always had years in between uh, the, my, my different levels of schooling, which I'm really grateful for that similar, um, it's my story, it's something that really worked for me, and I've, I'm glad that I've taken breaks before kind of coming back to the well or the pit or whatever <laughs> it feels like to you. Um, so I did my MLIT in Scotland, really enjoyed it. That's where I sort of felt terrified and had all of the strong imposter syndrome type things, but also really felt like I found my voice. I had something to say. I was able to pursue interdisciplinary studies with television and religion, which there's not that many places to do that, so I got really excited to write a dissertation on The Walking Dead. You know, so I was having fun <laughs> and going into debt. So I moved <laughs> home <laughs> and paid off my debt, uh, which again, that's an another one of those sort of, everyone's mentioning different privilege steps along the way. I was able to move home, which is actually here in San Diego, welcome. Uh, <laughs> And same sort of thing. I'm staying at my parents' house for this conference, right? That's another, I'm not paying to, to stay somewhere here, so. Um, and then after that, I ended up, because I applied to PhD programs and didn't get in and was laying on my parents' floor crying, not sure what to do next. And I ended up working at my alma mater at USC in admin, um, another very low-paying, tricky academic position that really opened my eyes to a lot of how things work. It was in the dean's office uh, in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. So I felt like I sort of understood academia as a student, as a grad student. I kind of understood what professors was, were supposed to do, but also this admin side as well, both the very high levels and the very low levels. So after all of that, I still felt like I wanted to go back. And as the one of the directors of my program says, you should only be doing a PhD in religious studies if you can't not do it. So that's sort of where I find myself now, as I'm doing something that I just feel like I can't 
not do. But I also am attentive to, I have a lot of different skills, I worked in a lot of different industries, and I'm mostly ultimately interested in storytelling and in creating conversations around different kinds of storytelling, religious storytelling, pop culture kinds of storytelling, um, the kinds of stories we share and talk about in academia, um, and just creating new spaces in which to have those conversations. So for me, this kind of conversation, reading this kind of book, it's like, yes, okay, I'm allowed to do that. I'm allowed to do anything. <laughs> Great. I sort of already, you know, maybe some sort of token millennial upbringing told me that I could already do that, maybe. maybe. <laughs> but in a positive spin in that way, it doesn't mean I can do whatever I want that already exists. I mean, there's also this element of you have the freedom to sort of, with a lot of hard work and probably a lot of failure, um, which I've only you know, experienced my first several waves of, and I'm sure I'll have several more, um, to be able to do the things that you want to do and not just succeed in a particular way. So I find myself writing papers that I want to write and going to conferences that excite me and not worrying so much about the prestige, and I don't think I would be doing that this early on in my grad experience if I, didn't, if I hadn't already been exposed to things like this. So. I'm glad you're all in the room. I'm glad I'm in the room. <laughs> so that's it for me. Hi. Hi. Will you set the timer up for me? I'm probably going to need it. Um, just, <laughs> just to keep, no, to keep track. I, I want to be under time, but I don't want to go too much. Thank you. Um, so I want to say a little bit about how this book came to fr fruition and kind of what we wanted it to do in some sort of way. And what I'll start with is that I am remarkably annoyed by a lot of the narratives around the alternative academic careers that say like in five easy steps, right? We can go from being an adjunct or a graduate student to someone that makes $75,000 a year, right? No, you can't, right? But this is the kind of story that appears in the Chronicle is like I went from being a graduate student to being a consultant and you like dig down in the story and you find out it's because mom had connections, right? Or you find that someone had like the Yale bump, right? That could get them in the door somewhere. I'm a state school girl. I got a chip on my shoulder. Like that's a real thing, right? Um, and I come from a working class background, so I couldn't like fall back on some of these things in the way that other people that I know were able to do. Um, so those kind of stories made me deeply unhappy because they were all instant success stories. Like, we're going to tell you this success that I had after the Academy and this one, and my career is amazing now, and it's just wonderful out here. And I'm reading these at the same time that I've just decided to take a year off, that I'm pregnant with my second kid, um, that I'd faced pregnancy discrimination in my old job. I dealt with gender-based harassment already. And I wasn't sure I wanted to do the academy. And I'm like, I'm not making any money. I'm sitting here in an existential funk because everyone's told me I've done everything right. And clearly I've messed up, right, somehow dramatically. Um, I graduated in 20, um, 2008 to give you some sense of like, it's excellent timing, right? It's amazing. Um, and so in 2013, I'm reading this stuff and thinking like, what is happening here? Like, this is not the experience that I'm having or the people I know on Twitter who are looking for these jobs are also having. So I met Joe through Twitter. 
Yay, alt act Twitter. Um, and he was approached to do this book and asked if I would like to participate too, right? We had kind of had these conversations already. And one of the things that we were really interested in here is that it says succeeding in the title, but I wanted to be really honest about failure, right? And the way that a lot of the alt-act job search is about how you fail, how often you fail, and the way that you have to kind of ferret out opportunity. Um, and I think for academics who understand success in a very like narrow, like we have to get to the tenure track job, we have to be inside this, who are used to success as sort of currency, right? Like did you get the grant? Did you get the book contract? Is that article placed, right, in this journal? Um, that failure is really scary, right? Like it's a terrifying thing. And I was definitely this person. I'm very much a type A, very much a you tell me which hoop and I will jump through it, right? Um, so that I couldn't just graduate, right? I had to graduate with like a book contract, which is stupid. Anyway, um, and was stressors put on me by advisors, but also internally driven here. Um, and so what I learned in my job search and, and I, as I was trying to rebuild this career is that I learned a lot more from how I failed spectacularly than I ever did from those like bumps on my CV lines, right? Which is I'm like, I'm gonna test out writing and see how this goes. Writing stuck with me. I'm gonna test out this other kind of thing. Oh, I really suck at that and I don't like it, right? And so to realize that as a number of our contributors say that failure is feedback, right? Like it's not about you as a person, but this is you figuring out what works for you or what doesn't work for you. Moxie saying that she wants coworkers. I love that I work at home by myself. Mm -hmm. Like it's wonderful, right? I've got my dog, I've got my cat. Um, my partner also works from home, but like it's awesome, right? Like I get to wear PJs to work and it is amazing. But that's because I'm a telecommuter and an editor of a magazine, right? I don't have to be in a particular space. Um, but I would have never, like 2013 Kelly, who had a remarkable existential crisis, would never imagine that I would have been an editor, right? Like that wasn't even in the forefront of something that I could do, right? I was a PhD, I was gonna teach, I was gonna be a professor. And what I realized after um, three years of testing out freelance writing, doing some writing coaching, which I hated, doing developmental editing where I got to make other people's books better, which is so much fun. Because you recommend corrections and you don't have to do them. Like, it's <laughs> glorious, right? I'm like, I'm gonna break your book apart and put it back together, but guess what? You do all the work. Um, that I kind of figured out things that I was good at. And like Moxie said, it's from that humanities training. Who would have guessed grading hundreds of undergraduate papers a semester would mean that I'm actually really excellent at how to make writing better? Because this is this tool that I had and that I really paid attention to and cared about with my students that now I apply to my writers and for other pieces that I do, right? Like this is a skill that I have. Who would have guessed teaching this many students and having that kind of schedules means that I can do time management, right? And I can multitask and understand this. Who would have guessed that being able to meet a deadline is an amazing thing, right? Which is hard for academics to hear where they mm -hmm. sort of assume that deadlines are things that you can extend into the future always, right? I have hard deadlines. I love them because it's concrete and I know what I'm gonna have every month and I know what I'm doing and my brain works well this way. Again, not something I would have necessarily known about myself, right? Um, or that there are these particular types of writing that aren't academic writing that I find really appealing and useful. And so we are very committed with this book to have both 
people's stories centered because the stories are really different. And, um, but also to have the kind of practical advice of like, what do you do, right? And what does this look like? How the hell do you make a resume from a CV, right? It's not easy. Um, partially because people want to know what you do, not what you've achieved, right? Like, what can you do in some sort of concrete way? Um, and I hate, anyway, resumes, ugh, right? Um, but, but this is practical advice that we have in here and that you can see our contributors failing amazingly, like just the things that do not work. And I am one of those people in this book, right, that I'm like, I don't know what happened, but this turned out bad. And that's fine, right? Um, and, and that's good to know about yourself. The other piece in here for us, particularly for me, is that I think academics have a sense that career is life, right? Like, this is what we've trained for. We spent a lot of time doing this. This is how we're molded, right? It's even that vocation. I'm going to pretend that I didn't see this, and I'm just going to say this last thing. Um, then it's this vocation language that exists around the the academy, right? Like, that this is a calling, right? This is something what that we do, right? Um, and one of the things I think is really useful about this book is that we're building lives, we're not building careers, right? Um, there are competing interests, we have complicated, messy lives, we have caretaking responsibilities, we have locations that we want to stay in, right? We have things that are going on that matter just as much as where our careers are, right? Um, I have two small children. That accounts into what I'm doing and how I understand this. Less small now. But, um, but I think that's the kind of piece that I want people to pay attention to, too, is that our lives are worthwhile beyond, like, CV lines, and we can take those experiences that we have and turn them into things that we probably wouldn't have imagined in some sort of way. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to pretend that it's just for me. It's just for me. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, so we have about 45 minutes, a little less than that, for questions and to have a discussion. Because I know what we talked about was having more of a discussion rather than a pontification of this so much like the panels <laughs> here. I'm, I'm trying to convince the academy that fundamentalism 
not giving us permission to be on the Internet while fishing, we would we're the ones who would actually agree to produce the draft of our draft in ways that um, that are making this content bring more contribution to to the discussion of this Thank you for that. I I think there are a lot of things to address in that. I'm not really going to address the fundamentalist religion, religious right, and alt-right thing. I do think there is a large and especially recently growing body of scholarship on that. It, it might be that you haven't encountered that, and it might also be that it's maybe more United States-based than where you're located. But I, I, I think maybe you should kind of relook at that with maybe a real global perspective around are people talking about that, and if so, what are they saying? But you talk about academia distancing itself from you know, real world problems and those kinds of things. I, one thing that the Applied Religious Studies group is doing, and we had some sessions on it, and I know some of you were at some of those sessions, is trying to help teach academics, and I went to some of those sessions because I want to learn too, how to speak in the regular brief <laughs> and accessible language of you know, people who are actually writing things that people read versus, you know, the real limited reach of academic scholarship that, you know, might go really deep, but unless you're in my field kind of looking at the same thing, you're not even going to understand what I'm talking about, nor will you probably care. Um, so I, I do think that that is something in the academy that needs, I mean, if we're just sitting there talking to each other, then what's the point, right? So doing public-facing scholarship, especially in religious studies, is critical, and I think that's what you're highlighting. But, but how to do it is hard, because that's not what we were socialized in and not what we did when we wrote our 300, 400-page dissertations. I'm actually going to kind of disagree that the university is what is putting us into these ivory towers and say it tends to be... Because the university, I think benefits from when scholars act in the public forum. Like, the conversation as a magazine exists because universities want their scholars speaking to a public audience. So I don't necessarily think it's that. I think there's a lot of fear among scholars, and I think if you're an early career person, there's fear that you won't get a job. If you are a tenured person, you may not have motivation to speak to the public, because quite frankly, it's not, you know, you don't, get additional pay for doing so. And public scholarship isn't necessarily rewarded um, compared to like a book deal. So I don't know if it's the university that's preventing people from speaking to the public and more just like the, uni like the university specifically and more just kind of bigger power structures. And I, I think I'm making a differentiation between those two that other people may not agree with, but I'm still gonna say it. I don't have a content question, a content response. So if anybody else has a content response, I just want to ask people because we are recording. If you could go up to the mic, and if you don't want to be identified, you don't necessarily need to identify yourself at the mic. But if you could use the mic, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. I didn't realize that. Don't all rush with your <laughs> questions. <laughs> pressure was too much, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, hi, um, my name is Amy Deathball. I'm um, at Temple University. I 
suspended in fall of 2018 and before that decided that I was not going to go on the faculty job market for a variety of reasons, a lot of which you all talked about. Um, primarily, I didn't want to move anywhere. My partner works at a nonprofit in Philadelphia and loves it very much, and I didn't want to pull him away from that. And I didn't want to move to Kansas. Um, no offense to Kansas. <laughs> I'm just an East Coast person and just couldn't move. Um, so while I was writing, I took a job, a full-time job, in the dean's office, um, being an event planner, actually. I did all the college's events. Um, I also still do event planning on the side as my side hustle because I have a lot of student loan debt. Um, and just recently, I became the director of graduate affairs for the College of Liberal Arts at Temple University, which means I oversee 18 master's programs and 14 doctoral programs, mm. and I am administrator. Um, That's a lot. It is a lot, and I love it, really mm -hmm. a lot. Um, but one of my, my predecessor was in the job for 14 years and just pushed paper around, for better or worse. I mean, we have over 700 grad students in the College of Liberal Arts, so it's hard not to just do that. Um, so my question is, um, you know, I would really, my goal is to provide actual services for grad students, and I'm, in my former role as the event planner, I started a professional development series in hopes that, you know, we could actually do that. Um, so now that I have a bigger position, and my dean, luckily, is giving me a lot of power in making these changes, so I'm just wondering what services um, you guys would recommend um, that I provide for graduate students. And that could be anything from mental health, which is a huge thing for us right now. Like that is, my grad students are talking to me about that. Um, but also just workshops and anything else, um, both academic and not, quote unquote. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you all. I'm going to go. Sure. Sure. So I think the practical hands-on workshops about this are useful, right? So that you have somebody come in and say, this is actually how you transition CV to resume. And this is what it looks like. Um, because a lot of us have learned this through trial and error, right? In some sort of way to figure out how to make this work for employers. Um, to have a sense of the people that are actually doing the kind of work that are in their fields but are doing it outside the academy. Just to have, I mean, I'd love to hear Moxie talk about what it means to be a social media specialist and I'm kind of jealous of that kind of job, right? But to just have a sense, like what can humanities PhDs do that doesn't look like what we're used to? Um, and I think, too, the mental health piece is one that I, feel rather strongly about um, the academy is not kind to people and is particularly not kind in the you always have to be on, you always have to be perceived as serious, you always have to be invulnerable. And bad things happen, right, um, in that kind of way. And it's part of the reason I sort of lost it, right, when I left the academy um, because it's like, oh, huh. It's kind of interesting, right? What it means to not have this identity that someone has really foisted upon me in some sort of way. Um, so to have folks to come in and kind of talk openly and honestly about that, I think is useful too. Um, so that you have almost like practicums for them, right? In, in some sort of way and do the really hands-on workshoppy piece. Um, instead of having people come and talk at them, right? To say like, what does this look like? And what do these careers look like? And are, can you replicate them or not? Right, I think is a, is a really important question too. Um, you know, I can talk to people about how they can become an editor 
they can't be the editor of women in higher ed because you're going to take that editorship out of my cold dead hands <laughs> right like it's just not it's not going to happen so but i can direct people to those other kinds of things and to think about what kind of training you need and how you would do that so i'm not going to disagree with kelly because that's never a good idea <laughs> uh but i think i also recognize Yes to everything she said, but also recognizing that in some institutions will offer more resistance to that sort of directed feedback, which is why I've been thinking a lot more about what are the skills I wish I had learned in graduate school. So pedagogy is one, right? First and foremost, we are teachers. Our first public is always the classroom public, right? That's the thing we always forget, is that we're actually being trained to be teachers, not researchers. The research is the, research is the thing that gets the job, but we're, so do your pedagogy, find your chances of teaching and learning. But the skills like the contract reading, right? Because you can always backdoor it as, how do you read your book contract? How do you read your article contract, right? Um, I think part of the reason academic publishing is a shit show is late stage capitalism, but also nobody knows how to read a contract. Um, and the same thing with how do you manage a budget? If you're gonna get a grant, how do you manage that budget? But when you become a freelancer, that comes into play. Like all these things that I'm talking about are like skills that I think you can backdoor in as academic skills. But when push comes to shove, like a workshop on how do you write your CV and what's the, and in that, what's the difference between a resume and a CV? So people know how to write what a resume is, right? Like you're just backdooring everything because you can't come in through the front door. Um, I'm gonna mention something that I, a couple things. Um, my library has some paid internships, both for graduate students and in some cases, uh, undergraduate students that allow them to diversify their professional skills and give them real deliverables that they can then put on a CV and we will help them put on a CV. So it sounds like your dean really has your back, which, oh, yes, wonderful, glad to hear that. But if you can start to try to develop some funded part-time positions that give people real CV lines, like that is one of the biggest things. And you're not gonna reach everyone if you do that, but that is a little thing. Um, one thing that could be more broadly done is um, headshots. Even something as simple mm -hmm. as providing people with a professional headshot that they can use. Um, those kind of things that have real material costs that are still necessary, like things like that matter to people. So that would be a lofty suggestion and then a more practical suggestion. So I'm that's amazing that Temple's able to do that. And I just see an opportunity to create like a, an integrated curriculum where you could bring these wonderful people to campus <laughs> and pay them to workshop with your grad students. I'm just throwing that out there <laughs> as a possibility. that when I started the professional development series, I was still technically a grad student. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was okay at that point. Um, and now that I'm doing it and working and collaborating with our career center, who for better or worse, I mean, they had been basically servicing undergrad students only, and they are getting a lot better with, the, you know, they now have one dedicated person for graduate students. Now Temple is enormous and has like 6,500 grad students, but it's something. Um, my faculty um, are coming around. Yeah. They were not happy to begin with. Um, 
And a lot of my grad students even don't, were not really, just like I had a hard time getting butts in seats. Another thing that I, you know, was really struggling with was like, how do I make this seem like not more work for them? Yeah. That is something I struggle with all the time. Like timing, like every event I do, I provide food, no matter what it is, always provide food. Um, and I stagger time so that, you know, people who are teaching Monday, Wednesday, Fridays can come to a Tuesday, Thursday event or vice versa. Um, but making this so that it is somehow not more work for them is like something yes. that I really struggle with. And if anyone has ideas about that, that would be great too. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, as each of you spoke, um, I like related to very, very specific parts of everything that you said um, in incredible ways. Um, I actually got a little sad um, and happy when more people came in the room because I really wanted to be more conversational, right? And then more people came in and I was like, oh, I have to share you. Also, um, <laughs> <laughs> congratulations, more people are interested. Um, so that's really awesome. Um, so there's many things that hit home with me a few that I wanted to like target and in the like essence of like conversation they're like not necessarily questions but very much like I'm throwing this out as a prompt right um, as opposed to like this is my research and I want to advertise for myself which I see happen a lot in other papers <laughs> um, so I'm not doing that um, number one I've had a lot of friends who've dropped out at ABB level and then they stop talking to me and that's so devastating, and it's the academy's fault, right? Because we're told to reject them because they failed. Mm -hmm. And I hate that because it's not failure. I dropped out of high school and I got a certificate um, that stated that I would be a failure in my community. They misspelled community, so that was awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Oh, sorry, I should have introduced myself. My name is Leah Laird. I'm studying in Claremont, California. Um, with some really amazing people um, like Tammy Schneider, John Berquist, uh, Jeffrey Kwan. Um, so, so I, I want to say like failure is not failure. Beep those guys. Um, I will be hanging it on my diploma wall <laughs> with everything else I've done. Um, Second, so if you have ABD friends, love them, love them, love them. They need all the support they can get. Um, something that I've noticed a lot is like when people get like famous, then they get over petitioned for work. And I think this is like prohibitive and harmful, right? So it's really exciting to get like a lot of writing offers, but now you can't hit all your deadlines. And there are some really amazing people who are probably your friends who aren't getting those offers who could be, could, could use them. And so, uh, you know, this is all out, right? Um, so if you guys could all speak to that, like how to measure value your time. And also like part of that comes into how little we take for all these offers we mm -hmm. get. Um, my current position uh, I got because I trained as a chef before I went to school, which is so dumb because they told me if you want to stop flipping burgers for the rest of your life, go get an education. And then I did, and I didn't get my job because I'm educated. <laughs> I got it because I know how to cook. 
Um, and I am underpaid for a chef and completely underpaid for my level of education. And I have coworkers telling me, shut up, because there are a hundred other people who would take your job in an instant, which isn't true. Believe me, nobody else wants to have my job. Um, so if you could talk to the, like, how to value yourself. I, I particularly was interested in the labor talk um, and the union talk. My partner is vice president of his local union. Um, and then how do we reject BS work? Uh, I think it's particularly bad in the United States where for some reason they think more paperwork is going to make us better professors or better administrators. I spend 45 minutes in every class taking attendance. And that is obscene. I have to take attendance three times because somebody threatened to call Sevis because some students were leaving early, right? So like, how do we fight back against that and say, how is spending 45 minutes taking attendance actually doing what we're supposed to be doing? Yes, they're in class, awesome, but they're not learning, you know? So. Anyway, thank you. Um, I actually didn't even know about the book. Uh, Jesse Knipple brought me in and said, you should come listen, and I'm so glad I did. So thank you, I'll be reading it. Thank you for that. You had some great questions and points and comments. Um, I wanna speak to your valuing yourself, right? So one thing that I want to do, that we're all trying to do, is help our students see that their voices matter. To do that, we have to kind of shift the cultural landscape in the same way. I want you know, our grad students, our faculty, everybody who's working there to know that their labor matters, but that's not the kind of messages they get, right? Teach this course and I'll pay you $3,000 for 15 weeks of your life and all your gas. And I mean, you won't have anywhere to work here, but you know, there are coffee shops if you can afford the coffee. So, you know, how do we teach people to value their own labor when in fact, you know, we clearly don't value it as an institution, as, as academia itself? I don't really have an answer to that. I'm just kind of, you know, <laughs> reinforcing, you know, what you were saying and saying like, I think that is, that requires a shift in a cultural landscape. I don't know how to make that shift happen. I think it has to evolve. I think every little thing we do can help make a little bit of a difference and help that evolution, that cultural shift start to happen. Um, it's probably really slow, like glaciers moving, you know, but <laughs> still, movement is movement. Um, I think we can all do what we can around that. You know, outside academia, uh, this book said it, outside academia, people change jobs all the time. I was like, wait a second, they do. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. They actually do. Um, well, partly because they don't have to have, you know, 30-page CVs, you know? <laughs> like, once you're invested in academia, it's hard to think about having that kind of nimble movement. But also, you have the freedom to say, you know what, I'm worth more than this. One of the authors in here said, academia doesn't deserve me. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're being told, like, you have to give everything up, don't have that baby, by the time you graduate, you'll be 40 and not able to have a baby. You know, like all these kinds of messages that we start hearing, and if you say, you know what, I'm worth more than that, I'm not gonna settle for that, you know, those are choices that people are making too. 
So I think the question about how we view people who don't finish programs or who don't land on the job market, right, in these <sighs> vaunted positions, right, where you might be teaching five classes a semester as an assistant professor somewhere where you don't want to live. For me, it was Wisconsin or Oklahoma, right? I was like, no, I'm just not. I'm not doing this. Like, I'm from Florida. I'm not doing winter, right? Like, that's a firm choice that I'm making. Um, but I think it's interesting about how we're socialized in this, right? Again, it's a very narrow vision of success. Um, I had the opposite happen, which is that I decided to take a year off and I felt like everyone I knew who landed on a tenure track job, like it was new phone who dis, right? Like it was very much like a, we are not gonna be near you. As soon as I became more vocal about the way we can do academic labor and the way we should think about our labor and how it's valued and to think about possibly that there are jobs beyond the academy to which my mom rolls her eyes and is like of course there are right like a job is a job is a job in some way um that there's some deep discomfort right within academia about taking your knowledge beyond these spaces and being able to be a scholar or to do these sorts of things, right? To have a 40 hour week job, but you're still interested in things and still doing things and still learning and still educating. Um, and there's this kind of deep way in which that's democratizing, right? Because we don't have to do it within these spaces. Um, and that's unnerving to folks who are invested in academic spaces, right? Is the only way to live the life of the mind is to do this, and it's like, actually, no, I put together a magazine every month that has great ideas, mm -hmm. right? Great ideas from really smart people, some of whom have PhDs, but some who are just amazing people that wanna learn and have learned and are curious and do this kind of work. I mean, what a privilege I have every month, right, to engage with ideas like that. Um, so I think, I think that's part of it too, right? Um, and I think, I mean, I joke all the time that Trina was very kind about my book grace period, but I like joke all the time that it took 65,000 words for me to be okay with leaving the academy, right? Like it took me writing that much and do it. This is the writer's brain thing, by the way. I don't recommend the rest of you write 65,000 words to come okay with whatever life choices you make. Um, but the, there's something deeply embedded in that where um, that came from a place where I was convinced I was a failure right, that I had somehow gone wrong, right, um, and that's like a real thing, right, and some folks have talked about the emotional impact of making these kinds of transitions, right, um, my partner, like, gets a job, leaves a job, he's an academic too, but he's in the sciences, right, and it's like, this is just what you do, right, it's a different, it's a different kind of thing, right, um, I don't know if it's because the humanities folks are more existential, right? Like there's something deep about like what we're doing that like makes us this way. Um, whereas computer scientists are like, whatevs, right? Um, but I think, I think that's a part of it. And like how to have those kinds of conversations and see those people and realize they're still doing the work that they were trained for and using those skills in a different way, I think is crucially important, um, you know, uh, but my alma mater didn't want to have anything to do with me until I had a couple books under my belt, mm. right? Can I ask yeah. A yeah. So, uh, just to share my own story, some of you may or may not know me. Uh, I teach at Michigan State University. I was denied tenure at Kalamazoo College, and um, there were people in my field, our field, <laughs> that pretty much thought I was, they just distanced distance themselves from me, thought that I would just kind of go into the nether 
but I haven't. And in fact, I would say that getting denied tenure is probably the best thing that's ever happened to me because I'm at a better institution. I'm just happy. I'm happier, right? Um, but uh, I'm sorry. I lost, lost my train of thought there just for a moment. But what I would say is that uh, one thing that's that all of you guys are talking about a little bit but have, haven't said is that academics are fucking snobs. <laughs> right? All of you have alluded to it in some way, whether it's the faculty member that's not really wanting their grad student to do a workshop on, you know, resume building versus CV building, right? whether it's, uh, you know, academics like to replicate themselves, so they want to see their little, um, their students go on into the field, and I have my student, one of my students here, you know, I, I want to see her, uh, you know, there, there is a little bit of ego at play here that I want to see her succeed because she's my student, right? And uh, I think letting go of that elitism and snobbery uh, especially in the humanities, right, and especially in religious studies and theological studies where we're, you know, taught to think about uh, a higher calling or a higher being. I think English is a little bit snobbier. Just going to throw that out there because they can't get over their fucking canon, right, <laughs> of dead white men. Oh, I cuss all the time. Yeah. Right? Right, and we have a canon too, right? Which is very white, very male, and so if you don't teach that, if you don't know it, then you're not worth it, right? And so I think part of this book, part of this, uh, you know, I think if we want to survive the industrialization and the growing, you know, commodification of the university, we have to stop being snobs. And I'll say one last thing, unions are everything, I belong to one. <laughs> and it's the reason that I have, you know, a good salary and a very good health care, right? So, so I'm going to chime in a little bit. I think in general, higher ed is very, Ibn Khaldun, who's great Muslim sociologist says, has this term asabiya, and I don't know how you translate it in English. I think I've seen it as tribalism, but that's not it. It's sort of that inbreddedness. Yeah. And I think that that's what higher ed has. Um, having said that, I will say my particular subfield at the AR, which is the Islam unit, and the people I went to graduate school with were all tenure track, not all, but majority of them are tenure Nobody's ever turned their back on me, and the community is incredibly supportive. So I think, you know, again, but I think the distinction is you see so many more people of color in our units. You yeah. see so many more women in our units, and I think that makes a huge difference. You don't in American religious history. <laughs> I was like, don't get us started, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I just, you know, I, and I think for me, and I, I do want to shout that out, like, I mean, higher ed is falling apart, it is imploding, it is self, it is a self-imposed implosion. At the same time, I also want to shout out those bright spots where my community, my, my discipline has been very supportive and is part of the reason I still have one foot here. Like, I can still talk to people I have from grad school, even though they know I'm not tenure track, and they, you know, like, what are you doing now? Like, let's get together and let's, you know, like, it's, it's celebratory. It's like, this is what you're doing, and that's okay. Um, so I do want to shout that out. I also want to mention that I only work in union shops now because $3,000 for 15 weeks when my day rate is $4,000, it doesn't make sense anymore, um, right? I mean, 
so what? Um, having said that, the place where I had a union problem was it was tenured faculty who were all on the union. There was no contingent faculty representation. So they didn't understand the contract situation, right? And I think that's really important, is that understanding how contingent faculty are represented in that union as well, um, I think is really important, either represented or, you know, places I work at now mostly have separate adjunct unions. But that, I mean, it makes a difference. It, it really does um, in that space. And so how do I know my worth? I have the luxury that I'm my own boss. I'm not responsible to anybody else, right? I negotiate my pay rates, I play with my hours, like whatever it takes to get what I need to get will, will happen, right? And that's the joy of being a freelancer. The, the downside of it is right now, I have four massive projects that will set me up so well, but they're all early stage and they don't have the funding yet. I don't doubt they'll get the funding, but it means right now it's really fallow, right? But when I get paid, I'm gonna get paid. So it's like, I know my worth, but it's also, trying to struggle through some of those logistic issues. Um, the, the nepotism uh, that you mentioned earlier, uh, just, well, it, you called it? Um, Asabia. 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 Yeah. It seems In like nepotism Redding. might be like. No, no, it's more like we want, it's, it's what Trina said. It's, it's the. Like we want to replicate ourselves. Well, right. Right, yeah. Um, okay. But, you yeah. know. Okay. That's um, but not healthy. Mini me. I feel that that is what happens here. In SBL, I stopped trying to get papers in here. Just stopped. Because every time I go to a paper, it's just a famous person or it's not attended. Mm -hmm. Right? They only want us, they only want papers that are going to say what everybody thinks is the right thing. So I guess it's that, that idea of like, we're only going to listen to what we already agree with. And I thought the point of the conferencing system was that we were getting new ideas. Um, so I do want to say that, like, because this is recorded and out there publicly, like, I would really like to see some fresh shit happen at these conferences because I'm really, I don't, I don't attend papers anymore because it's so boring to hear the same thing that was said in 1990 said now. We had so. a question. We did, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, just while you're walking up, if anybody needs us to make the microphone more accessible to you, please signal, and we'd be more than happy to do that as well. So, uh, my name is Beth Toller. I'm actually not tenured, but I'm on a tenure track um, position. I teach in um, theology, um, practical and pastoral theology. So, um, I don't know quite how to frame this, so just bear with me. And, um, I'm maybe not a popular voice here. Um, I have, n and I'll say I have not read your book, so I'm rooming with Mary Beth, who's told me about the book, but I don't know the book. So that's <laughs> by proxy. By that's proxy. my confession. Yeah. No, so good. my ignorant. This may be all out of a sense of ignorance, um, but I do think it, it's an important thing to raise in this conversation. So on the outset, let me say I'm all about. I totally agree with the critiques about the academy and all the things, and I know that I lucked up and it was nothing, spe I'm not special, like there's nothing special that I did to get this job. I'm not better than anyone else. Most of the time I feel like I'm not worthy of even being here. So on one hand, I really, really appreciate and I'm on board with the critique, 100%. On the other hand, I'm sitting here and I'm listening and I'm asking myself, the not completely um, clarified question of, um, you've, everyone alluded to privilege. This conversation feels very privileged. 
a word that has come up for me a little bit is, um, and I'll, I'll put myself in this because I've had these same conversations, is um, the narcissistic gaze. Are we repeating the narcissistic gaze of academia by having the way that this conversation is structured? It, it feels... It feels a little, it feels a little, yeah, it feels familiar, the way that even this conversation is structured. Um, again, not having read your book, I don't know how people of color or of differing socioeconomic places have a voice in this book, and they may have. So they I'm, do. Okay, that's good. That's good. I just, I don't know. It fe it's feeling, this whole conversation is feeling very privileged. Um, and I guess I, I, no one has to respond. I mean, I'm ha well happy for you to respond, um, but I just it's it's feeling familiar in a in a way that I don't think you intended. So um, yeah, and I hope you don't hate me. Mary Beth is my friend. I'm a, <laughs> like I said, I'm on board with the whole idea. It's just the way that I don't know. It's something very troubling. I can't quite get my head around. Thank you for that. I'm not actually sure if I should recuse myself from this because you know best. My AAR roommate. Um, I know I'm paying for like, thanks for blowing up my session. <laughs> You're buying the drinks tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, one thing you said is, you know, I am in this privileged position. I know I'm not special. You know, I didn't do anything to, you know, get this or whatever. I mean, like, you are special. We're all special. So I'm just going to say that. Um, I think we all deserve more than, you know, kind of some of the messages that we get. When we're in academia, hopefully you have been treasured and lifted up throughout your academic process. Privileged conversation. Absolutely. We're sitting here at AAR. Yeah. I mean, in San Diego, too. Like, it's a San Diego year. Like, how much is it? Okay. We, we did the higher ed thing. That's privileged in and of itself. Just I getting mean, your BA is privileged. Right. Yeah. I, I mean... The setup in this room, I know for those listening, you can't see it, but the setup in this room is the same as like the regular conference setup, you know, where we got like the table with like us sitting behind the table, like with, with our mics and like rows of chairs, you know, with that's where everyone else is sitting. I, and so it has that sort of conference structured feeling, and it is. And we're here at AAR. Like, I kind of don't know what to say about that because, yes, I want to acknowledge it, but also, like, you can't overturn the system in one night. And that's kind of one thing I've been saying when I talk about like the slow pace of change and cultural shifts and those kinds of things. So I'm not sure what, what you're thinking could happen that would eliminate the privilege because, I mean, I think that is it's not so it's much true. privilege as perpetuating this. It's the only way I can feel like I can articulate it right now is there's a narcissistic gaze. She feels like there's a narcissistic gaze to a panel like this. And I, I don't necessarily think there's that. I think if this sounds like you've heard it before, it's because after 2008, nothing, fundamentally nothing was the same. And so it's 2019. We've been having this conversation for over time. a decade. And I'm sure there were people having this conversation prior to 2008. And so I guess my question then is, if this feels like it's repetitive, if this feels like it's narcissistic, if this, how does this feel, what have departments, what have institutions done to make it so we don't have to be on this panel next year? I would love if this panel didn't have to exist because departments were preparing their graduate students to do things besides academia, period. 
And I mean, I, Moxie <laughs> is my roommate, right? I feel like I should disclose here. So, um, and uh, yes, yeah, so Moxie's my roommate. Um, this is not a tag team, but this is a reflection that the Chronicle was talking about adjunct crisis and the way higher ed works in the 90s, right? This is not a new conversation. People have been leaving the academy and developing these careers that we now call alternative academic careers for a really long time. Um, it is a remarkable privilege to be able to have a BA or an MA or a PhD program. Um, I feel that privilege because that was the only place that I was gonna be able to think about ideas from rural North Florida, right? Like from a trailer park, like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, that's, and so, yes, so let's grant all of those pieces. Um, but, like, Moxie, like, how many times can we have this stupid conversation, right? I mean, to be really honest with my frustration with this, um, this is not something new we've discovered, right? There is a continual labor crisis. Um, PhD advisors are still not taking this conversation seriously at all. Um, last year at my alma mater's reception, the director of graduate studies stopped me and said, I think maybe, 2018, I think maybe we should be thinking about careers like yours for some of our graduate students. And I hear you've written an article about this. Do you maybe want to talk to them about how to do this? But I'm sure it's not all of them, right? And I mean, okay, right? Like I have affection for the grad students there and I wanna have those conversations with them. But it's like, how many times can you talk about this, right? Like, and how many panels at AR can we have about this is how you do applied religious studies or this is how you do public scholarship and get yourself out there and, and do these things um, before we actually embody some of this stuff and think through these pieces. Um, so for me, I'm just, like I'm just tired, right? Like, um, which is maybe not what, I should admit it as the editor of this book, right? But I finished this book and I was exhausted. Like I was exhausted where I'm like, I'm so not here for this conversation anymore. Like I think this book needs to exist because the people that are talking in here come from different backgrounds, socioeconomic. They have different experiences with PhD programs. They understand what it is like to transition and do these kinds of jobs and also have to come up with a really strong sense of we get to determine life by our own terms. Other books about the workplace have already done this, right? It's like academia doesn't realize it's a workplace, right? Like continually, like, I was like, it's a job. Like, do you get a salary? Do you have benefits? Like most of us don't, but like, you know, like that's like a thing that exists in some sort of way um, that we get paid some sort of hourly rate. Um, so I really had this moment when we finished it to be very, very honest, where I was like, oh my God, can I just not stop? Can I stop talking about this? Like how many times do I have to talk about this? before we like pay attention to this in some way. But also, <laughs> my mom is like, just get a job. Like, damn it, just get a job. Like, how hard is that? And I'm like, oh no, it feels hard. And she's like, it's not hard, right? I'm, it, and it is hard, right? Like, I shouldn't make light of this, but it's very much, I think, some of this academic context where it's like, what do I do with my labor now? It's so valuable. Like, what do I do in these other sorts of spaces? And like, in a lot of ways, labor is labor, and we should kind of think about the ability to step back and reflect on that. So I feel that from you. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I think you just named. Yeah. Just, and I, the only word I could come up with at the time was, was a horribly negative connotation. And I'm a psychologist too, so like that's the name that I use. But the, the narcissism is, is 
song. And in that way, end of the day, all right, I'm going to say one thing and then have, I have one person who has had their hand up for a while. Um, But what I will say is to people who are privileged, like you, privileged like me, right, because even though I'm not a tenure track, I've got job security, uh, privileged uh, like Mary Beth, is uh, when you have power, and this, is, this comes from my anti-racist training, what are you willing to give up, right, so that everyone can come up? And that is a much more difficult question that we're not necessarily asking of not only our grad students, but our tenured full professors, right? So on that note, I'm just going to give the microphone to Cody and then uh, maybe have a few more comments and then, oh, I shouldn't have said your name, I'm sorry. I'm Cody Musselman. I'm a fifth year graduate student, so the job market is definitely forefront of my mind. Thank you for this conversation. Um, Our department recently has started to do a lot more in terms of trying to train us for jobs outside of the job market, outside of the academic job market. And training is maybe too generous. We've put on some workshops where we've invited in archivists or librarians or uh, private school teachers to talk about how we could translate our skill set. And the problem that we run into, and this is something I wanted to pick up upon, uh, how to not make more work for graduate students, yet another seminar to attend to also gain these skills. Because you'll have probably half of the students that are there still wanting to go for that tenure track job, but looking at what their other options are. And then you're stuck and you're in the bind of asking yourself, do I spend this hour and a half, this two hours working on my chapter, working on an article, working on something that could propel me towards that tenure track position that I'm aspiring towards? Or do I spend it thinking about alternatives, which is what you need to do and realistically do? And then to think about that outside of just that one isolated event, oftentimes the recommendation is to get some skills like volunteer at a library, have an internship, And these are things that are also taking hours out of your week away from your research. So I think that's a tough place that graduate students are in while they're thinking about how to diversify, how to be realistic, but also, you know, they want to keep being on the job market, being in the academy, an option. So that's one thing. And then the other thing that I thought about, uh, as you were mentioning the skills, the budget, the contract reading, how to make them so that they're not a part of another workshop to go to, I wonder if there's a conversation we could be having with faculty who I know, who I also know have a lot of other jobs that they need to fulfill at university, but how to make that part of a graduate class. Mm. You know, there's a religion, 501, 510. Is there also an assignment in there where, imagine you have a grant, you have $10,000. How do you distribute these funds that could be alongside your 10-page paper about Durkheim? So just things that we could think about collectively for what are suggestions we want to make to religious studies faculty about how to work in uh, practical skill sets that are not yet another workshop but are part of a classes that we're already taking. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I want to say that I 100% agree that I love a workshop. I think they're powerful. This stuff needs to be worked into the program in credit-bearing courses, and I would love if faculty were willing and able to um, outsource the, you know, ethically outsource um, people covering that content and admitting that they may not be the best person to talk about grantsmanship. They may not be the best person to talk about public scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. But I do think it's really important for this to be a credit-bearing 
course because it should not, this shouldn't be additional work unless you want it to be additional work. And for me, it was a lot of outside work to develop my skills. I think there has to be a shift to credit bearing professional development courses in religious studies graduate education period. Yeah. Can I, I will just say a glimmer of hope. I've taken that class. Yeah. It was in my program. So as much as all of this really needs to be talked about, there are programs that exist that put on workshops that bring alums in who were PhD, whether they finished or not, in alternative jobs. It's why I'm sitting here. The director of my program essentially put my name forward to be here. So it is and it can happen. It's obviously not happening enough but to sort of invest in other people who have the same mindset. And kind of to your question earlier too, investing in friendships and relationships that are not transactional. And, and I had the same advice given to me when I was in the entertainment industry, right? That it's not so much who can I connect with at the top of the ladder, but looking right around you yeah. and realizing mm -hmm. my cohort and my colleagues and the people who are in the same boat as me, we gotta support each other not just professionally, but definitely emotionally uh, as well. Right, on that note, thank you so much. This was so amazing, and thank you to the audience, and so, yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.